Okay, so if you have your Bible open in Matthew chapter 8, and just keep that open before you. How many weeks ago? About six or seven weeks ago, we began a new series looking at foundational Christian truths. These are the things that are under attack today more than ever. The world has just gone that way, largely because of the development of scientific knowledge. So they, they, they haven't gone for Revelation. They've gone for Genesis. They've gone because that's where a lot of, you know, the foundational truths exist. Genesis 1 to 3. And so as it's the church, as a church, we need to keep pace with that. I need to be ready, as it says in Peter, Peter is one of Peter's epistles, always be ready to have an answer for the hope that lies within you. So that's what we've been doing. We took a week and we just looked at creation. And creation is greatly challenged as you're alive on the earth, more so than any prior generation. And we saw how the Bible does give us an explanation of creation. It's just that it's in simple form. And people disrespect that. They want it in scientific form. Well, it isn't in scientific form as such, but it is there in many different places. We, we, so that was our first week. Then we looked at God and the nature of God. The last time we, we did this series, we looked at man and, and who man was. Today we're going to move on to look at Jesus Christ. Complex thing to study. It's called Christology. Very complex. And we'll start by looking at Matthew chapter 8 and verse 3. Matthew chapter 8 and verse 3. Sorry, Matthew chapter 8 and verse 23. <laughs> Matthew chapter 8, verse 23. It's where Jesus calms the storm. This is, Su Yin read this on Friday night. I thought she was absolutely on the ball prophetically there, Su Yin. It was great. Then Jesus got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Without warning, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. He replied, You of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, What, and this is our question for today, What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. What manner of man is this? And I'll start, if you begin to follow your notes, I'll start with some of the basic misrepresentations of Jesus Christ that you get all the time. They can drive you crazy. If you've ever been in a room and somebody's talking about a friend of yours and they're saying the wrong thing about them, they're lying about them, you know, you can't keep your mouth shut, can you? You've got to, you know, see, they're not like that. And there are so many th things said about Jesus Christ, so, and, and, and they're wrong, that we need to have some, you know, some readiness to answer those things. One of the first things they say then is that Jesus always looked for the good in people. Fine, but that's only a partial truth. Yes, Jesus looked for the good in people. Of course he did. But when you go home this afternoon, read Luke's gospel, chapter 1 to 8, without stopping, and you'll get a bit of a shock because he, drew, he pointed out the bad in people constantly. And he did that for good reasons, to try and help them overcome it. But you can have like a, a romantic view of Jesus, and that's, that's wrong. It's imbalanced. It's not the whole truth. Yes, Jesus found the good in people, but he was also very quick, actually, to point out the wrong in them. The second statement, a misrepresentation. Jesus would trust everyone, and therefore we should trust everyone. 
No, Scripture actually says that Jesus put his trust in no man because he knew the heart of men. And one of the most common ones, Jesus would never judge anybody. Now that's completely wrong because the truth is Jesus will actually judge everybody, right? So I'm sure you've heard them a thousand times and you'll hear them a thousand times again. Typical reflections, and what I mean by that is considerations that some people called apologists who study the defense of the Christian faith have thought about the whole story. There's a guy called Josh McDowell, and he's written many books on the subject of of really defending Christianity. And in one of those, he says this. If you ask yourself what the apostles asked in Matthew's gospel, what manner of man is this? Who is this? This Jesus Christ. Who is he? then you're going to be faced, if you think about it long enough, you're going to be faced with three options. He's either a lunatic, a liar, or the Lord. And Josh McDowell goes through all three. And he looks at the lunatic one, or the other way of putting it is bad, mad, or God. He looks at the lunatic one, and he considers. Now, when you look at the life of Jesus Christ, is he mad? And the answer is no. Whether you're saved, lost, atheist, the answer is no, he's not mad. We know how mad people behave, and no, you couldn't call him mad. Was he a liar? No. In fact, quite the reverse. He got into endless trouble for telling the truth, right? So he's not mad. He's not a lunatic. He's not a liar. And so you're kind of getting squeezed into, you know, the Lord. Avenue, And of course, that's exactly who he is. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. So typical misrepresentations, typical reflections that you can have on who Jesus is, and then typical questions that you are going to be asked. And the first, and of course, well, it used to be the most common. I noticed it's waned a bit. But many people would say that Jesus Christ never existed. My boss used to say that in, in social services. He was a good guy. I really liked him. Lovely fella called John Jilks. And he was adamant that Jesus, I don't know how he got that into his head, but he did. Jesus never existed. And he used to come in and debate this with me. On one day, I mean, this is how (laughs) devoted he was to this. He came in with a 35-page document that he had produced himself on why Jesus, and I just lost it, you know. I said, for heaven's sake, John, have you not got better things to do with your time than this nonsense? You know, you see, because it's a stupid question. I've done church history, so maybe I understand more about that than he did. But nonetheless, there's no excuse for that type of foolishness. There isn't. And I would say to him, you know, do you believe in Ramesses? Of course I believe in Ramesses. Well, he was thousands of years before Jesus. Do you believe in Pythagoras? Yes. Well, what's your problem with Jesus then? You've got to understand that when people start trying to disprove the existence of Christ, they've singled him out. They've pulled him out of history as a figure, and there's a reason why they're trying to disprove the existence of Christ. Well, they can't. It's just a nonsense. So I used to debate with John. I said, John, you know, the existence of Jesus Christ is an historical fact. You don't have to have faith. I'm not talking about faith. It's an historical fact. And if you try to disprove that, you're just being very foolish, amazingly foolish. I don't know why I left there. I've never seen him since. But you will find people like that. It's also not just an historical fact, but in Cardiff University, there, in Cardiff um, Cathedral, the Anglican Cathedral, they have a huge church library there. 
and it's a church history library and it's fantastic you can go in there and they have many copies of the manuscripts largely held in the Vatican but they have copies of them and when you study them you see this it's not just this guys the stories of Jesus Christ are not just what you've got in your New Testament there's mountains of them from the Jews from the Greeks from the Romans from the government offices there's all manner of documents that relate to the stuff that was stirring society in the times of Jesus about him about what he did so you see it isn't just an issue of faith it's actually an historical fact you may get some comfort if you're lost here this morning you may get some comfort out of the fact that someone once told you Jesus didn't exist well you're living in fantasy world because Jesus did exist and you're gonna to have to make your decision whether he was mad I don't think so bad no he was far from bad so you're left with a, a, a question that we have all had to answer at some question of our life at some time in our lives and that, that he is Lord that's who he is typical question number three did Jesus ever claim to be God yes he did over and over and over and over again he claimed it countless times and in numerous ways once when he was talking with the Pharisees he said that before Abraham existed I, I am I was I've always been in other words he claimed to have a quality with God the Father he happily forgave sin and only God can forgive sin and of course he used the I am term the one that got him in so much trouble and if you look in Luke's gospel chapter 23 Luke's Gospel chapter 23 and verse 3 when he was under trial Luke's Gospel chapter 23 and verse 3 when he was before Pilate so Pilate asked Jesus are you the king of the Jews yes it is as you say he replied then Pilate announced it to, to the chief priests and to the crowd I find no basis for charge against this man but instead he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching he started in Galilee and now he comes the way here and Pilate goes on and you can look at the different situations in before Pilate before Herod um, and who was the third one forgotten the third one Caiaphas. and you will see that Jesus in those situations was under pressure and didn't actually answer their questions he didn't answer them directly but in numerous situations he without any shadow of any doubt revealed to us who he was but in those situations because those people dishonored him he, he didn't even speak to Caiaphas. so did he claim to be God absolutely question number three was he born of a virgin and I would approach that question very differently and I would ask myself can anybody be born of a virgin can a woman ever get pregnant without knowing a man and of course the answer is yes there, there, there have been several about the last hundred years there have been around 10 virgin births five of which have been scientifically proven and followed through when a woman has woken up and she's pregnant and it's a bit of a phenomenon but it exists and five of those cases were in more modern times and it was somehow that the woman's body produced an egg and the woman was pregnant without ever knowing a man so virgins birth virgin births do happen right they're very rare but they do happen but this is the crucial point all those children were female because the female body could only produce a female egg there was no males 
And Jesus was absolutely born of a virgin, but of course he was a male child. And there's never, there has never been that in history before or since, and I believe never will be. That's the route that Jesus came. Now, once again, I don't think that's the right question to answer. I want to know, why did he come in the first place? I mean, yes, he came and of a virgin, fine, but why did he come? Why did he have to come? And why did it have to be of a virgin? And the answer is, 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 is fascinating, but also, you know, it's, it's mind-expanding. You think of your great-great-father, great-grandfather, okay? So here's you, here's you, and we start tracing back your great-great-grandfather. Great-great-granddad Illumide, okay? You're Illumide the third. Here's Illumide the first. And let's say you don't like him, okay? And you want to take him out of your family tree. Can you do that? You can't do that. No matter what you try to do, and you know why? Because his blood is in your veins. And you cannot change that. It's in you. It's your DNA. Why did Jesus have to be born of a virgin? And it's amazing. See, all this was before science ever discovered DNA. Right? Why did Jesus have to be born of a virgin? Because the blood that was in Adam... Go back before your great-grandfather. Keep going. The blood that was in Adam is in you. Okay? We're part of humankind, mankind. And it was, like it or not, we don't fully understand this, but God says life is in the blood. They've had some revelations about DNA, fine, but they don't fully understand that. But God says life is in the blood. And because death came upon mankind, a new bloodline had to be started. And there's your virgin birth. You see, when a baby is in the womb, the blood of the mother never touches the baby. Only, I can see a few doctors nodding there, <laughs> only the father's blood is in the baby. If the child is protected. So you had to have a virgin to overcome the fall of Eden. You had to have blood. In the book of Acts, it says this, that God took off his own blood. Try and understand that. We will one day. And it says that God's own blood was put in Mary. So she had to be a virgin, and there had to be a new bloodline started. It's not an illogical gospel. It's a perfectly logical gospel. And again, if you're here and you're not a believer, you need to think about that, because this was written thousands of years ago, right? You see, modern science just keeps on catching up with God and proving the Scripture's right. Question number four, did he rise again? I won't go into that this morning, but that's a, that's a big question, and you need to deal with it in, in some detail. You can go on our website and look at the podcasts that cover the Easter messages, because there's an awful lot in that. But Jesus most certainly rose again. And there were 11 apostles that went out and were tortured for a very long time and martyred to stand by that point. Men who would very obviously not do that for no reason. Right? In fact, Peter, when he preached in Acts, he preached beside an empty tomb right beside it, right? So Jesus most certainly rose from the dead. But our question this morning is, what manner of man is this? Who is Jesus? And what can we know about him? And I'm afraid there's only one place that you actually find that or find the full revelation of who Jesus is and why he had to come, and that's at the cross. Someone described the Gospels as a speeding train, 
that when it goes through the early years of Jesus' life, it races along and then it grinds to a halt and starts to slow down as it approaches the cross. Very true. And you will see, I've given a little acronym there, which is very useful. It gives us an understanding of just what was happening on that cross. And number one, why, why was Jesus there? Why was this man who walked on the earth and proved himself all-powerful, just still the storm, right? Raised the dead. Why did this man allow the cross to be put upon him? He obviously didn't have to do that. He obviously could have stopped it. There was some other motive. There's something else going on here. Why does he do that? Again, you've got to ask yourself that, and the answer is number one there. It's a conquest. As we said two or three weeks ago, remember, sin didn't originate with God or man. Sin originated with the devil. And it was a fallen, it was Lucifer, the fallen angel down upon the earth. Sin originated, the, the real original sin, if you like, was in Satan. And what you had, it's a sad situation. And that's why God gives mercy to you and to me. Because here you have this fallen angel where the sin is, and here you have this man who God, God loves and creates. And this situation in the garden gives rise to temptation. Temptation. That's what it was. There is, there is where it started. And of course, Eve couldn't cope. Adam couldn't cope. And they fell in that temptation. And God's mercy didn't let them go. And we saw how there was no grace for angels. It's just for us. Praise God for that. But why did Jesus come? Who is he? Well, number one, he came to, for the, to, to conquest the devil, to overpower the devil. Praise God for that. And to rule in this world because Adam lost his authority there in the garden. Number two, he came to a place of, to, to, to bring reconciliation between God and man. And every Christmas... We, we all gather together and it's joy to the world, the Lord. And we sing all those songs, you know. And they're all about peace. Peace on earth and peace to all men and all this sort of stuff. What peace? Reconciliation peace. The great divorce. God and man separated once that fall happened in the Garden of Eden. The great separation. And on the cross, the great reconciliation. That's what he was doing there. And the peace that he brought, the reconciliation he brought, well, that's what he was doing. He was reconciling you back to your eternal father. And thirdly, he gave his life as an offering, something we can pass over so lightly. In fact, at Easter time, when I was preaching about the fact that Jesus didn't die on Good Friday and he wasn't raised on Easter Sunday, it causes people to stir because we get so loyal to our, our Christian traditions. And one person came to me, they were so upset <laughs> that I'd upset their traditions and they were flicking through the Bible. They, this is never right. This is never right. You know, Jesus died on Friday. Jesus died on Friday. I said, just put your traditions down. I guarantee you, Jesus died on Wednesday afternoon. And I didn't go into all the details on, on that particular day about why. But this guy was so upset. Listen to this. For thousands of years, in Jewish tradition, on the 15th day of Nisan, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the priests took a lamb. And they took that lamb and they sacrificed that lamb as an offering to God. At 3 o'clock on the 15th day of Nisan. Now, when do you think in that Easter week Jesus died? 
The lambs were the old covenant, a temporary measure for the reconciliation between God your Father and you, a temporary measure. And for generations, the Jews knew what happened on that day, at that hour. The Passover lamb was raised to the Father as an offering. And you can know beyond any shadow of any doubt, says it in the scriptures anyway, that Jesus died at that time as an offering for you. An offering making peace between God the Father and us who have fallen. Praise God for Jesus Christ, as, as, as Paul says. And the next one is, is one of the saddest, but also one of the best. He gave his life to provide satisfaction, if you like, to God the Father. It was an appeasement. The old-fashioned word, but a good word, is the word propitiation. And the word propitiation means that Jesus turned away the wrath of a king. He turned back the anger of his father. You see, justice has to be done for my sin. Right? Somebody once said, God doesn't forgive sin. He crucifies it. Someone has to pay for it somewhere. And propitiation or satisfaction is what was taking place on the cross. Look at me, listen. This is a true story. In France, many years ago, during the Civil War, there was a young man who stole a lamb. He had no food, he had no money, he was just about to get married. And he stole that, but he got caught. And the punishment in the village where he got caught was hanging following day in the village square. And the tradition, which couldn't be broken, was that whoever was caught stealing, they would be led out, and at 12 o'clock noon, when the bell rang in the bell tower, the lever was pulled, and off you swing and you're dead. And he was up in court and he was sentenced and his fiancée was there. And she cried out to the sergeant in that town to have mercy, please. Have mercy, please. He was just trying to feed us and we're due to get married. And the sergeant would hear nothing of it. And the boy was led away. And the next day comes and he's led out and he's looking for her. But she's nowhere to be seen. Thinking, that's funny, and they put the rope around his neck, and he can't find her. So never mind. He stands and they're waiting for twelve o'clock, but no bell. And the sergeant said, Ring the bell. No bell. Go and find out what's wrong. And they send someone climb up the tower, and strapped to the bell was that girl. She had climbed up, she got in there and got herself on that. And that large metal ball and she was dead. And the guy came down, told the sergeant what had happened. And I remember, I've got the book at home. Do you know what the sergeant said? Looked at the boy, looked at the bell tower and he said, there's been enough bloodshed for one day. Let him go. Propitiation. Satisfaction. That's what Jesus was doing. Justice. That sergeant's job is justice. He has to make sure that justice is done. He's only doing his job. And there's, a, there's an element where there has to be something paid for. This has to be dealt with. And in his opinion, and of course, ours too, that's enough. That's enough. 
And you see, when Jesus was on the cross, God the Father looks at him and looks at you and says, that's enough. That's enough. I will accept that in your stead, in your place. Praise God. And lastly, and if the worship team could get into place, please. Lastly, he was your substitution. And that literally means that he took your place. Now, you will have heard me talk about this many times because it's important for us to understand who Jesus was. Look at me a moment. Jesus is the Lord Jesus Christ. Three very important things. The Lord means that he was and is the eternal Son of God. God has always been a trinity. The eternal Father, the eternal Son, the eternal Spirit. Okay? That's the Lord, Adonai. Next one, Jesus. And this refers to the fact that he entered the human race. Right? So the Lord, he's God. He's God the Son, as well as the Son of God. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. The word Christ means Messiah. Christ is Greek. Messiah is Hebrew. He's the Lord Jesus, the Messiah. The one who has come to take away, as John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And you begin, when you get the whole picture, whether you want it scientifically, historically, you begin to understand who the fullness of Jesus is, who he is as the Son of God, and begin to understand what he was doing there. Now, I don't know if you've ever asked yourself this question. Why does all the attention go to Jesus? I mean, we don't sing too many songs about the Father. We do, but not many. Or songs about the Holy Spirit. And yet God is triune, equal, right? God the Father, God the Son, they've all suffered. God the Father lost his son, sent him into the world, had to watch that. The Holy Spirit dwells in us, tarries with us, tolerates us. So why do we spend so much time focusing on Jesus. Isn't that a bit unfair? On God the Father? Do you ever ask yourself that question? <laughs> it's just me. Why though? And you say, oh, because of the cross. Well, the cross, you see, Paul the Apostle moved on from the cross. I say that with the fullness of respect. He moved on into the power after the cross. I don't think the cross is the only reason. It's a big reason. I'm just not sure if it's enough to fill eternity theologically. Do you know why? Or at least one of the principal reasons why. It's this. It's because God, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you can imagine God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Do you know who stepped down from glory? Who? Jesus. God the Father didn't leave glory. The Holy Spirit didn't leave the glory. Or the, if you like the Godhead. It was Jesus. The Lord Jesus... Jesus, if you can imagine God the Father standing here, and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, one of us has to save man. Someone has to go. They're fallen. And Jesus said, I'll go. I'll go. It's an Isaiah. Here I am, Lord. Send me. I'll go. And God the Father makes a covenant, actually, with the Son. If you go, all the sins that they have committed will be put upon you. I'll still go. But my covenant with you is this. 
I will raise you back to life on the third day. That's my covenant. So God the Son, you see, this is why we will worship Him eternally. Because He is now trapped in a human body. Forever. He left, it's, you can read all about it, Hebrews, Ephesians, Philippians. He laid aside His majesty, took on everything for me, suffered at the hands of those He had created. He took all my guilt and shame. Then He died and rose again. And now today he lives on heaven and earth exalted. I really want to worship him. And if the old hymns or whatever begin to make a little bit of sense. Meekness and majesty. Do you know that one? Graham Kendrick. Fantastic. Because Christ had to come. And I believe that's one of the principal reasons. Billy Graham once trying to explain this point. He said, imagine that you loved ants and you created ants and you put them on on the ground and you loved ants and they were your creature you know but the ants went wrong terribly wrong so you had to stop them they were going to walk over a cliff sort of thing and he's like stop but of course the ants live in a different dimension you can't communicate so you become an ant and you go down there and you say stop but they won't listen in fact they kill you And Christ took on human form, being found in human likeness. Hebrews, right? Sorry, Philippians. Being found in human likeness, he walked among us to pay the debt that we owe. And I believe that's one of the principal reasons, because in the book of Acts it says, we now have a man in heaven. Lifts our humanity to the heights of his throne. Oh, what a mystery. Meekness and majesty. The man who was God walked among us. It is not an illogical gospel. It's a heartbreaking one. It's an absolutely heartbreaking one. It's the story of a moral being who has always existed. God's a moral being. He's righteous. That mean, the word righteous means someone who always does what's right. Cannot do wrongs, not in their nature. And God is a moral, eternal being, bursting with creativity and life. Bursting with it. So much He made us. He made us to love us. And then the fall happened, and of course we don't understand all that. But we do understand what we've been given. And that's this. We're going to have communion. In fact, if I could ask the ushers to come forward and go right ahead and distribute the bread and wine. Thank you for listening to today's program. I trust you have been blessed and edified by what you've heard. I want to ask you to do something, and that is to become a partner with us here at Preparing the Way. By doing so, you can help us to take these essential messages out to many other nations, many other people around the world. You can become a partner by visiting our website, preparingtheway.tv, and there you will find many ways that you can join up. Folks, it is a pleasure and an honor to partner with you in bringing in the end times harvest. God bless you, and once again, thank you for listening.